John 2. In our lives, when we want to be like someone, we achieve this end by studying them, by learning about them, perhaps learning from them or learning under them, by spending time with them. If I want to be a good musician, I would do well to study and practice the characteristics of good musicians. I would do well to find a good musician under which to learn. If I want to be a good artist, if I want to be a good pastor or teacher or mathematician or electrician or whatever the case may be, there's a great benefit to me as I attempt to learn about and learn under those who are capable in their respective fields. The epistle of 1 John was written sometime after the epistle, the gospel of John, yet as far as we understand, it had the same human penman just as it had the same divine author. In 1 John 2.6, the penman, John, writes this, He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk even as he walked. Speaking in regard to Jesus Christ in his life. So we see that Jesus' life upon this earth beyond simply the tremendous reality of what he came to do on the cross of Calvary was also intended to serve for us as an example of the way that we as God's people should live our lives. In much the same way, if we want to live out the characteristics of Jesus Christ, just as if I wanted to live out the characteristics of a great pastor or a great artist or a great musician or a great mathematician, we ought to study the life of Christ. We ought to understand the life of Christ. We ought to learn at the feet of Jesus if we want to be like him. Now, by saying that we are to be like Christ, just as any form of imitation, we're not talking about an effort or even an ability to clone every part of a man's existence, but rather to follow Jesus' divine example. And so in the next few minutes, as we look together at John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, we're going to take a look at two attributes of Jesus Christ that were manifested in the miracle at Cana. The first attribute is one which we can emulate. The second attribute is not one that we can emulate, but one that we can take full advantage of in our lives. And as we learn of these two attributes, that's what we're going to learn. How to be like our Master. How to be like our Savior, Jesus Christ. How we ought to conduct ourselves in our own Christian lives. Look with me, if you would, first of all, verses 1 through 5. You serve an obedient Savior. You serve an obedient Savior. We'll read them. And in the third day, excuse me, and the third day, there was a uh, marriage in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. As we begin this narrative, Jesus and his disciples are found on the third day in Cana of Galilee with Mary, 
Jesus' mother. Now, we're going to look at the history of this event first of all, and there's some debate regarding the history in numerous aspects. First, there's some debate over what the third day is that is referenced, depending on various things that we really don't know. Where John was baptizing on the other side of Jordan is one of the things that we don't know that would be helpful if we were trying to determine what the third day was. Exactly where Cana of Galilee was would also be helpful. Various aspects such as this would help us. All we can do is propose ideas. Some say that the third day refers to three days after the call of Nathaniel in Bethabara. We talked about the call of Nathaniel last week and we recall that uh, Philip was from Bethsaida, the same city as Andrew and Phil and Peter. Philip went and found Nathanael. We know from other scriptures that Nathanael was from Bethabara. He was not from um, Bethsaida. And so he wasn't from the same place as Philip, Andrew, and Peter. We do not know where he was when he was sitting under the fig tree, when Jesus Christ um, saw him under the fig tree where perhaps Nathaniel or excuse me Philip found him we don't know where that was specifically perhaps it was in Bethsaida where Philip and Andrew and Peter were from perhaps it was on the other side of Jordan where John was baptizing perhaps it was near Bethabara we really do not know if Bethabara was adjacent to Jerusalem and Jericho on the other side of Jordan it would be highly unlikely that Jesus would be able to journey from there to Cana of Galilee in one's day time. Therefore, many say that it was a three-day journey from Bethabara, where Nathanael lived, to Cana of Galilee. That would have been, from the other side of Jordan, approximately 24 hours of walking time to where they presume Cana of Galilee was. 24 hours of, of walking time, of course. If uh, you're walking from point A to point B, you're not going to go the 24 hours straight. We have a hard enough time when we're traveling, driving 24 hours straight. These folks back in, the, in this day did not walk 24 hours straight. So we assume that perhaps they walked eight hours a day with rests in between and such. And at eight hours a day, it would be a three-day journey to get from where they perhaps think John might have been baptizing on the other side of Jordan to where Cana of Galilee was. That's one theory. There are others that assert the third day to be three days following the, third, the first declaration of John. To me, this makes more sense. I can't prove it. I can't substantiate it. But this one makes more sense. We recall that John bare witness of Jesus in verse 15 of John chapter 1 and cried that this is he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me for he was before me. In verse 29, we see the next day John seeth Jesus coming. In verse 35, we see again the next day after. That would have been day two after John's declaration. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, we see the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. That perhaps could have been the third day following the declaration of John. Now, the problem with this is distance. If Bethabara was, in fact, a 24-hour journey to Cana of Galilee, there's no way that Jesus Christ would have made it from Bethabara with his disciples to Cana in one day. So there are perhaps other ways in which we can feasibly get there. It would, could be feasible that Bethabara was north. It was on the other side of Jordan, not in Galilee, to the east of Galilee, but well north where there could have been a one day's journey to Cana. 
It could also have been possible that Jesus had journeyed the majority of the way from Bethabarah and was on the border of Galilee when Philip found Nathanael. Perhaps Nathanael wasn't in his city or perhaps Bethabarah is not quite where we understood it to be. So there are many possibilities. I believe that this would be the third day after John's declaration, that everything is being keyed in here to his declaration of Jesus Christ being the Messiah, to the day when Jesus Christ's public ministry was officially declared. Now there is also some debate as to where Cana is located. We don't know everything about Cana's location, but it is sufficient to know that it was several miles west of the Sea of Galilee. So if we're looking at a map here, and this is Israel, we have the Mediterranean Sea right here. We had the Sea of Galilee up north, the Dead Sea to the south. The Sea of Galilee in between those two roughly is where Jerusalem would have been. Many people believe that on the other side of Jordan, adjacent to Jerusalem is where John the Baptist could have been, but he may have been up north a bit farther. Cana, if Galilee's here, would have been, the Sea of Galilee would have been west of the Sea of Galilee. Maybe a few hours journey from there. Now from the situation that is presented, it seems likely that Mary was the guest who had been invited to the wedding based upon some relationship of hers and that Jesus and his disciples were called to the wedding as guests because of their particular relationship to Mary. In other words, it was an extension of Mary and her relationship with the guests that Jesus and the disciples were invited. This would make sense because the Hebrew culture is one of great hospitality. There were very few situations where a person, whether that person was well known to a family or whether they were practically a stranger, would not be shown hospitality if they were to arrive at a door. Now the final bit of, as I'll call it, cultural cleanup that we need to do before we really dig into the passage is understanding what we're talking about when we're talking about a Hebrew marriage ceremony. The nature of the Hebrew wedding is very different from the nature of an American wedding. When my wife and I got married, we desired very much so to honor those who attended. We desired very much so to um, enjoy and share that day with them, but we weren't interested in a very long marriage ceremony. As a matter of fact, from bang to bust, from the start to the finish, it was 36 minutes long. And I thought that was a success. Wonderful. There was a salvation message in there. We did our vows. We even had a nice little special number. Everything was done. 36 minutes. I do. I do. Wonderful. It's over. The reception was about two hours after that. We had the opportunity to mingle, to thank people, uh, to cut the cake, all of those great things, and then we were finished. What a wonderful thing. Two hours and 36 minutes, it was all done. That's great. Now, in Hebrew culture, it was nothing like that. Hebrew culture, New Testament Hebrew culture, wedding feasts are events that span numerous days of hospitality. It was not unlikely that this feast that Jesus and his disciples were at at this time would have been nearing perhaps the better part of a week by the time the events of this particular day that we'll be reading about transpired. Enough time for all of the planning to have gone into how much wine was going to be needed, enough time for all of that to be, to be consumed. So if they were planning on a long festivity, 
several days. They would have planned ahead. They would have been ready for guests. Just not quite as many guests perhaps as they found coming to the wedding feast. And so we're probably numerous days into this feast by now. We're probably numerous days into this celebration. So we come to the event in question. It is likely that the shortage of wine can be directly attributed to an unexpected number of guests. Since Hebrew culture was so hospitable, they would not turn away the companions of those who were invited to attend. Jesus perhaps was invited as one of these. Mary was invited to the feast, and she says, well, certainly my family is invited as well. That's just culturally what they did. And so Jesus was back into the feast. Well, Jesus had disciples, men who were following him. And as Jesus arrived with these disciples, the wedding party would have said, certainly, your friends are invited as well to join us in these festivities. Other guests possibly would have brought companions as well. And so at some point amid these festivities, the wine failed. The wine was completely consumed. Now, I had mentioned in my message from Ephesians a while back in regard to the wine in this passage, we came to this passage when I was speaking of the concept, the biblical principles of alcohol and wine in Scripture. As I mentioned that, I told you that I can see nothing in the text or context that would lead me to understand any other circumstance than that this wine was wine, not simply grape juice. I understand and respect those men in various capacities, movements, and positions who have put a great deal of effort into framing a historical argument that the wine spoken of here and that the wine spoken of throughout the New Testament was grape juice, was not alcoholic wine, but was unfermented grape juice. I respect those men. I appreciate their arguments, but I personally have never seen a compelling argument along these lines that can satisfy me as far as the context, the culture, and the intent of each passage is concerned. I certainly respect if you disagree with me in that regard, and I'm not going to argue with you about it, but that is where I stand on these passages that are referring to wine um, in the New Testament. We'll touch on this subject just a little bit more as we move through the passage. Once the wine had failed, Mary looked at her son and stated simply, as we see here in verse 3, they have no wine. They have no wine. This was not a statement aimed at informing Jesus, nor was it a statement to simply imply that Jesus and his disciples had outstayed their welcome and they needed to leave. This was clearly a statement insinuating and expecting that Jesus would solve this problem for his hosts. Mary came to Jesus and the clear insinuation here is, this is a problem and I'm expecting you to solve it. Jesus' answer is one that people hold many different views on. Let's look at the answer again in verse 4. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. And his mother's response is somewhat curious. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. As I just mentioned, there are many differing views. I hold a particular view, but certainly you are entitled to hold a different one as I present them. It must first be stated unequivocally that Jesus' answer is not one of disrespect. As Jesus spoke here in our culture, if my wife 
or my mother were to come up to me and say, would you take out the trash? Or my mother were to call me up and say, would you be willing to visit around Christmas? And I, on the phone, said, woman, I'm a pastor of a church. I can't leave around Christmas. That would be extremely disrespectful for me to call my mother woman. In the Hebrew, that was not so. Culturally, this was acceptable. Culturally, this was just fine. Culturally, this was not disrespectful to Jesus' mother. It is also clear from the text that everyone, excuse me, it was clear from the text that Jesus is expressing some level of disapproval with his mother's request to remedy this situation. It seems very clear here. He's saying, my time is not yet come. What have I to do with thee? This is a phrase, once again, not disrespectful, but is expressing some manner of disapproval with this request. And so what is Jesus Christ doing here? What, what's the deal with his response? And why then, if he is expressing disapproval, did his mother persist in expecting him to perform a miracle? Those are the questions that we must ask. There are many expositors who believe that Jesus is rebuking Mary for attempting to obligate him to a miracle before his official time to begin miracles would commence. Now, to me, this solution has a problem with it, and that problem is that his public ministry had already begun. He had been baptized. The Holy Spirit had come and abided upon him. He was then whisked into the wilderness where he was tempted for 40 days and yet without sin. He has then come back and been announced by John the Baptist as the Messiah. Everything had already taken place for Jesus Christ's public ministry to begin. And so, if his ministry has begun, why would it not be the time for miracles? And so as I was studying through this passage and I was meditating on it, this particular explanation as I was looking at other expositors didn't make sense to me. That his time had not yet come for miracles. Perhaps that's what he was saying, but is that really the case? There are other expositors who believe that Jesus is rebuking Mary for the presumption of expecting him to do a miracle when they are only supposed to be performed according to the will of the Father. In other words, Jesus Christ was saying, Mother, woman, this is not a miracle that is in line with my purpose. I need to be about my Father's work. Why are you obligating me to a miracle that is not, about, that is not in line with God's will, that is not in line with God's purpose? Now, at first, I thought, well, that, that makes sense. But then I started finding reasons why that really wouldn't make sense to me. The first reason I found is that Jesus always did the will of his Father. And so the fact that the miracle ended up being performed means that the miracle was in fact a part of the Father's will because Jesus Christ always did the will of the Father. Second, the text indicates that Mary had spoken to him about the problem and had done so in a way that was somewhat discreet. She didn't go up to him and say, Son, I need you to turn water into wine. 
She went up to him and said, they have no wine. Now clearly the insinuation is there. I want you to, to do something about this situation. This is an opportunity for you to perform a miracle. This is an opportunity for you to show your power. And yet she did it in a way that was somewhat discreet. Because of the discretion with which Mary used, if Jesus Christ was disapproving of the miracle from a father's will perspective, he could have just not done the miracle. He could have just not done it. Because it's not as if she was obligating him publicly to do so. Yet following Christ's expression of disapproval, Mary persists in her expectation that the miracle would be performed. The implication is, whatever Jesus meant by his disapproval, it was not enough that when Mary heard him say, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. That did not flag something in her mind that said, Oh, this is not good. This is not the will of the Father. I should not be asking him this. She didn't say, Oh, okay, I'm sorry. She didn't back off. She said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you to do. With that said, I'd like to propose a third possible theory as to what is going on here. Again, you do not have to agree with me here, but this is what I believe is going on here. The ministry of Jesus Christ had just begun. He had been baptized and thus identified with John. John had declared his identity. He had been tempted without sin. He had begun to gather disciples. Yet he had not performed any outward miracles. He had not yet begun to actively display the glory of the Father. He had not yet begun to actively declare the Father before men. Do you think it is possible that Jesus Christ being a man like other men, Jesus Christ understanding our infirmities because he has been tempted in all points like his we, he did feel anger, he did feel fear, he did feel uh, the emotions that we go through as humans is it possible that there was some element of inhibition in Jesus' heart as he began his public ministry? Perhaps the inhibition that you feel when you're about to knock on that door and speak to someone where you know that this is, the, this is what you, you want to do, that this is an opportunity that you have to share the gospel... Or when you're sitting next to your friend or you're, sit, or you're out raking the leaves and you strike up a conversation with your neighbor and you know that you're supposed to do something, but there's also something in you that's just a little bit fearful at doing it. I remember when I got my driver's permit. After I passed the test and obtained my permit, I went better than four months without ever getting behind the wheel of a car. I had gotten my permit late because I wasn't all that interested and I had no really any reason to drive. So I really didn't need a license at the time. So I didn't have much compulsion to do so. But even after I got my permit, at that time there was fewer regulations on such things, I didn't really ever get behind the wheel of a car. I wasn't necessarily afraid to get behind the wheel of the car, but there was that, I suppose, fear of the unknown quality that I don't really know what to expect and I haven't done it and I knew at some point I'd have to but I didn't really have that oomph to get out and do it. There were a few days one August where my parents went to a couples retreat. They went out for a few days uh, out up to the mountains with our church and my grandparents came and stayed with us for that time. 
one day my I finished my homework and I was just kind of doing my thing in the evening and my grandfather came he threw some keys in my lap and said let's go for a drive okay so I went and I got behind the wheel of a car and we went for a drive there was nothing necessarily wrong with going for a drive there's nothing in the past that really made me not want to drive I just maybe had a little bit of that fear of the unknown could this have somewhat been the feeling in Jesus' heart? Could it be that Mary, with that intuition and perception that is seemingly universal among loving mothers, saw the need to proverbially push Jesus out of the nest and compel him to begin manifesting his full glory that his father had called him to declare? Now, to say that Jesus needed some compulsion to begin his ministry would not necessarily lessen his deity nor would it lessen his ability. It would, however, heighten the reality of his humanity and highlight the degree to which Jesus Christ was submissive to the authorities in his life. You recall back during Jesus Christ's early days, as recorded in the book of Luke, Mary and Joseph had left Jerusalem and they go a day's journey and they're looking for Jesus Christ among the caravan and they find out he's not there. Was it Matthew? Do I have the book wrong? I don't recall. You know the story. Mary and Joseph can't find Jesus anywhere. They end up returning to Jerusalem and they find him in the temple. Speaking with the doctors, speaking with the men. They're marvel at his knowledge. As... Mary and Joseph come up to him and say, where have you been? He says, know ye not I must be about my father's work? And they say, you need to come back with us. And he submits himself to them. He submits himself to their leadership and their authority. Well, as a child, certainly, some children know no strangers. Perhaps as he grew up, now he's beginning that ministry and there's just a little bit of trepidation in his heart. And now it's time for Mary, the same one that told him when he was younger, son, you need to come back with us. Now it's time for that same mother to say, son, it's time for you to go. Son, it's time for you to begin. I pulled you back that first time. This time it's time for you to go. This makes sense to me, particularly in light of Mary's answer. When Jesus Christ says, woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour has not yet come. She looks, she doesn't say, oh, I'm sorry, son. I didn't realize it wasn't your time yet. She didn't look at him and say, well, you're right. Maybe this isn't the right type of miracle. She looks at the servants and she says, whatever he tells you to do, do it. A little bit of a nudge. Jesus, I know you think you know what's best, but I'm your mother. It's time to start. It's time to go. If the miracle had truly been a problem to Jesus, would not his statement have stopped the suggestion? But this was something that the Father wanted. Jesus knew it needed to happen. And God used the wisdom of his mother and the obedience of a son to see the work of God begin. 
perhaps you don't agree with me, that's fine. But that's my theory as to what Jesus Christ was doing here and why Mary persisted. And this is where we can rest the personal application from this first point in our sermon. Jesus Christ is 100% God. But we find comfort in the reality that Jesus Christ is also 100% man and therefore able to be touched with our weaknesses, able to relate to us. When I think of Jesus Christ as a man who perhaps needed a little bit of a push from his wise and perceptive mother in order to begin the ministry that he had been called to perform, I appreciate that from the perspective that, you know what, I'm the same way. I love God. I trust that you love God as well. I trust that we desire to do what God has called us to do. I trust that we desire to worship God in spirit and in truth. I trust that we desire to be out evangelizing the lost. But that doesn't make it easy. It doesn't always make it easy for us to do what God has called us to do. Jesus Christ was called to declare the Father. Jesus Christ was called to do the works of His Father. Jesus Christ was called to declare the kingdom being at hand and to show the power of that kingdom with signs and wonders, with miracles and with the authority of His preaching. But that doesn't necessarily mean that what He was called to do was easy for Him. It doesn't mean that when He was had crowds following him looking for the carnal needs of bread looking for them looking for him to heal the sick and the lame and yet rejecting him as messiah doesn't mean that that was easy for him just because jesus christ had the power of the father just because he had all of these amazing miracles that he would perform doesn't mean that it was easy for him to do if you think I'm wrong, we can fast forward to a day where Jesus Christ is in the garden, the garden called Gethsemane. Gethsemane being an olive press, literally speaking of the squeezing of those olives, where Jesus Christ in agony is sweating drops of blood and he says, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Everything that Jesus was called to do on this earth was not enjoyable. And perhaps as he approached each phase of his ministry, he did so with the same fear that is in our heart when we're about to knock on a door. Perhaps as Jesus Christ approached each phase of his ministry, there was that trepidation in his heart that you feel when you want to talk to your family member about Christ. You know they need it, but you're not looking forward to the response. Consider Christ's submission and recognize that the level of submission he is showing to his mother echoes the level of submission that he will eventually show to God the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. And this willing submission to his authorities is placing him on a path that will lead him to willingly yield his life on the cross in conformity to the will of his Father to die for your sins and for my sins. The very... Not the very first step, but one of the first steps in your redemption was Jesus Christ's obedient submission to his parents. In this particular case, to his mother. Consider also the importance of our submission to our earthly authorities, through whom God often chooses to guide us and direct us in this life. 
See, your parents were not assigned to you by some divine lottery. God does not sit up there rolling dice and determining whose parents are going to be whose and whose children are going to be whose. Your parents were given to you with a specific and a divine intent and you ought to treat them as such. Jesus Christ's parents were given to him with specific and divine intent. Jesus knew this and he submitted himself to his authorities. Point number one, you serve an obedient Savior. That's the point that we ought to emulate. Point number two, verses six through 11, you serve a powerful Savior. This is the point that shows us the power that we have through our Savior. Look with me at verses six through 11. And there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews containing two or three firkins apiece. Jesus saith unto them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, Draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast, and they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, he knew not whence it was, but the servants, which drew the water, knew. The governor of the feast called the bridegroom, and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine. And when the man have well drunk, then that which is worse, but thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee, and manifested forth his glory. And his disciples believed on him. We come to the miracle itself. Jesus sees six water pots that were present, as the scriptures tell us, for the purpose of Jewish purification. These would have been the water pots that were placed probably near the door so that people, excuse me, could wash their hands and could wash their feet when they entered and before they ate. So these water pots were specifically there for the purposes of purification. The scriptures tell us that the water pots held two or three firkins apiece. Now the firkin, as best we can understand, is a measurement which was roughly equivalent to nine gallons per firkin. So at two or three firkins apiece, we're talking 18 to 20, 27 gallons of water that were filled up in these fairly large basins. Jesus tells the servants to fill them, and they do so. And notice that the servants fill them to the brim. They fill them all the way to the top. After which, Jesus tells these servants to draw from the pots and to serve it to the governor of the feast. The water was made wine. That the water was made wine is a testament to Jesus' power. That Jesus would tell them immediately to present the wine to the most honored guest at the feast is a testament to his glory. So Jesus Christ takes this water and he tells them, draw it out for the governor of the feast. The fact that the water is made to wine is an amazing miracle. It shows the power of Jesus Christ. The fact that Jesus was going to present that water that was made wine to the first person he's going to have it presented to is the honored guest is Jesus Christ displaying and manifesting his glory. When the Lord of the feast tasted the wine, he immediately called the bridegroom to him. Now, we do not know the degree to which the bridegroom knew of the miracle, though it seems likely that the bridegroom knew that they were short on wine. It seems likely that, that he would have been privy to one degree or another to the fact that Jesus was supposed to be solving this wine problem. The response of the governor is very positive. That while usually people expect the good wine at the beginning and the lesser wine 
once people were full, once people were satisfied, once people were perhaps a little less discerning as to the flavor of the wine, this bridegroom waited to present the best wine at that point in the feast. This bridegroom waited till near the end, perhaps, of the feast to bring out the very best of the wine. And so we learn not only that Jesus Christ has the power to turn water into wine, not only that he has the glory with which to present this to the most honored man at the very beginning, but we learn as well that Jesus Christ's miraculous power was not accomplished halfway or done in a manner that was less than perfection. The power of Jesus Christ over things physical and spiritual is the power of the Creator itself and should be regarded as such. Jesus Christ did not just make wine. He made the best wine. He made wine that was far superior to even that which was presented at the very beginning of this tremendous festivity. It was the best wine. Let me return to the reality of Jesus turning water into wine for a moment before we conclude. While I have expressed my opinion that the wine spoken of in the New Testament is to one degree or another referenced as alcoholic wine, I would argue that the alcoholic content was greatly diluted in this wine as we can understand from history. I have presented very clearly as well in my Ephesians message that particularly in American culture, I believe consumption of alcohol is rarely, if ever, justifiable for a Christian. The nature of testimony, the nature of temperance, the nature of the expectations upon us in this particular culture preclude that justification. I further went on to remark, and will remark again, that one of the fruits of the Spirit is temperance. And temperance cannot be exercised in an intoxicated state. To be intoxicated, to be under the control of any substance in such a way, is sin. It denies the fruit of the Spirit in our lives because it denies the ability of the fruit of the Spirit to exercise temperance through us. To exercise control over our faculties as temperance expects. Now, I'm not talking about prescription drugs, pain medication for the things that we need. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about us purposefully dulling our senses. It's sin. Please don't get me wrong. As verse 11 closes out the record, John states that these things were done in Cana and that in them Jesus manifested forth his glory. That's what we've been talking about this evening. Jesus Christ manifesting forth his glory. And that is what we need to understand today. Certainly the glory of Jesus Christ was manifested in this amazing miracle wherein he demonstrated his power over the physical elements. He literally turned water into wine. He changed the physical composition of that which was water into something entirely different. This is a divine miracle. But in reality, his glory in the situation began before the water became wine. His glory in this situation began when he chose to submit himself to the authority of one who was over him. When he elected to submit himself to his mother's authority. The glory of Jesus is not simply found in what he did, but in the sum total of who he is. A man 
100% consistent with the character of God because he is 100% God. In every act, whether it was simple obedience or miraculous transformation, his goal and his result was to glorify God and to declare God to man. And for us as we close, we can ask ourselves a few questions. Certainly, we are not God, yet we have the ability to glorify God through our own submission to authority. Are we? Are we submitting to those authorities in our lives and allowing God to lead us through them? Children, our parents, perhaps our employers, perhaps our government, to the degree to which our scriptures command us to do so. And certainly, while there is no man or woman in this room who can rightly claim miraculous power over elements, do you trust God? Do you trust in the God that does have that power? Christ walked this earth as an example in two ways. Christ's humanity is an example of what we should be and how we ought to live our own lives. Christ's divinity is a reminder that it is God that worketh in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Christ's humanity teaches us that righteous obedience is possible. Christ's divinity reminds the believer how that righteous obedience is possible as we are strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And so this beginning of miracles is a manifestation of Christ's glory and a wonderful reminder to us of the God we serve. But not just the God we serve, but the ability that we have to serve him back. Let's pray.